Welcome to Leadership Conversations, a podcast by the Sustainability Board Report. Join us as we engage in conversations with business and civil society leaders, educators and advisors discussing the role of sustainable leadership in today's world. The Sustainability Board Report is an independent, not-for-profit project. We aim to showcase different dimensions of sustainable business leadership and corporate governance. We publish reports to help individual leaders, organizations and investors to understand the changing landscape of environmental, social and governance factors. Welcome to a new episode of Leadership Conversations. My name is Frederick Otto. I'm the founder and business advisor of the Sustainability Board Report, TSBR. And as always, I'm here with Helena Gudjonsdottir, our project manager. And today marks the first episode of our mini-series of Future Ready Boards, where we are exploring what ESG preparedness means for corporate boards In our latest research, we have created the world's most future-ready board ranking to highlight board of directors that are resilient and able to respond to material sustainability issues. And we are interviewing leaders, speaking about what makes a sustainable, future-oriented board. Our first guest in our mini-series is Pamela Ravazio. Pamela has been a great contributor to our research and know her as a very pragmatic and outspoken expert on corporate responsibility and corporate governance. We are talking to her about what she considers a future-ready board to be. Helena, what were your highlights from our conversation with Pamela? First of all, she has a wealth of knowledge. I think she said she's been in ESG for 15 years, and you can really hear that through everything that we discussed with her today. I think one of the the big takeaways is that she talks about the importance of future-proofing businesses for all the changes that are facing us and how that is important at the board level and for executives. Now, she also mentions something that's important here at the Sustainability Board Report in terms of ESG competence is that you don't have to know everything. You can upskill your board members, but it's also okay to sort of reach out for external knowledge, consultants, or some extra help. It's also interesting to hear her advice of governing sustainability is that you cannot govern something that you don't understand. At the same time that you cannot manage something that you don't measure. I think that's a huge takeaway um, for our listeners today. And at the end, she also mentions some of the work she does uh, with the INSEAD Directors Network. And it's nice to hear what INSEAD is doing in terms of incorporating sustainability, the SDGs, and ESG-related topics into education for directors. What about you, Freddie? Was there any huge takeaway for you from the conversation? We are talking, for example, about jurisdiction and how ESG not always fit into prevailing law. So she gives an example of Sweden, and Pamela is a board director of a Swedish company. It's quite interesting to hear how policymakers are really barring companies from incorporating more societally conscious business into their bylaws. So we'll hear more about that. And like you said, overall, a lot of good advice, what leaders, particularly board leaders, can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think without further ado, we can dive into today's episode. On today's episode of Leadership Conversations, we welcome Dr. Pamela Ravasio. She's an advisor to executive management and board of directors, a keynote speaker, author, independent non-executive director, 
and she also is a board member of INSEAD's International Directors Network. Pamela is specialized in corporate governance and responsibility with a strong link to innovation processes and digitization. She has a track record as global stakeholder manager, head of CSR and sustainability, and she is a consultant to medium and large enterprises, advising on future-proofing their businesses in a rapidly changing world. As always, it's a great pleasure speaking to you today, Pamela. Thank you, Frederick, for having me. Really pleased. Pamela, for those people who don't know you yet, could you tell us a little bit about your background, your leadership career and passion for sustainability? And I know you're very passionate about that. Sure, pleasure. So um, you could argue if we were to do football, I'm a left field player. So I'm not an originally trained sustainability person. I came to it through practice. I'm originally a computer scientist and proudly so. It turns out it's one of the most beneficial pieces of knowledge that I, uh, I have accidentally acquired uh, in the good old days. I've been in the ESG sustainability space for 15 years now really gone through the ranks from uh, working with NGOs, doing compliance, paper trail compliance in a couple of jurisdictions, worked with very small companies, worked with very uh, big companies, worked within trade associations, and in that sense, progressively sort of acquired a, a wide range of experiences. I tend to focus these days on consumer goods simply for, for a number of reasons, really. But I think there's something fascinating to being able to touch something. I think every one of us can attest to that, what it is to own your things. And I think it's no different when you make them as a company. And then there is a thing about consumption and more responsible consumption, where I think there's a real challenge and a, a, a real paradigm shift that needs to happen as we talk about also governance and, and our economic systems, really. And that's really what's attracted me to that area. These days, as you said, I work with execs and their boards um, of medium to larger sized companies in creating that pathway towards global goals. And that it's, when I say food to fit, it really means a world that is possible within the planetary boundaries and the future goals, SDGs, that we need to implement in order to continued this prosperous path of our humanity. You work a lot with boards now, particularly around the topic of sustainability um, and ESG, and you were kindly providing input to our latest research of the world's most future-ready boards. Now, let me ask you this. Generally, what do you consider a future-ready board to be? So without going into the depth of knowledge and so on and so forth, at the highest level for me, a future fit a future ready board is one that if there are trade-offs to be made, then it is towards the prosperity of humanity in the long term. In other words, they prioritize planetary boundaries and societal goals at the very least at level to business goals. And if push comes to shove in the present time that we live in, would prioritize those over the business goals. Yes, you have to be, you know, at least in a black zero as a business, you have to survive, otherwise you can't do anything else. But there's a, a huge difference between doing okay as a business and going down a pathway that really means you're sacrificing everything else 
in order to be profitable and prosper as a business. And in my view, boards have understood that when they are future fit and they're willing and able to take that call if it needs to be. Okay, perhaps we can look a little bit in the future now and talk about a scenario where boards would not get their head around this, would not pay attention to physical impacts of climate change or the planetary boundaries. And I know you work with companies that produce stuff, as you were alluding to already. So what does that scenario look like and where does the urgency sit? I mean, the scenario really looks like, in particular if you produce stuff, as most of the companies in fact do, as you very well said, you're going out of business. If you don't have supplies to make your stuff, uh, there's nothing to be sold, there's no business to be had. It's as simple as that. And that's even before deep diving into anything related to societal impacts, let's say, employees you have that rely on you to give them jobs. So it's really that. If you can't wean yourself off petrol or um, petrochemicals, for example, if you can't wean yourself off one-time only use of metals, if you cannot mean your, uh, wean yourself off the waste in the food supply chain that currently is happening because of either perfectionism or mismanagement, and a lot of it is due to the latter, there's just not enough to go around. And not enough to go around doesn't mean only on an individual basis, it means on a business by business basis. There's not enough for everyone. If we go on the way we do now, we have to find out of necessity other ways so as to survive as an economy, as a humanity. And that's just a scientific fact. It's for a reason that the planetary boundaries are called planetary boundaries. It is probably fair to say that we're all facing the same future, whatever that may be. But if we bring this back now to an individual context, an individual corporate context, how do these challenges differ or pose a different set of challenges depending on, say, for example, on jurisdiction or size of the corporation? I mean, it's an interesting one because in particular, when it comes to jurisdiction, you always see two things, right? One thing is the lowest common denominator required by law. And those usually vary. And to me, it's always, just to give you one very interesting um, example out of that, if you think about the B Corp movement, they are required to incorporate certain sort of formulations in their bylaws. They remain Western European and usually very advanced or considered to be very advanced jurisdictions. And Sweden is one example of that that do not allow to add those formulations into the bylaws because it goes diametrically against what their definition, for example, is with regards to the obligations a stock-listed company has towards their shareholders. So you have that part. So things like that do obviously vary by jurisdiction. And in essence, the, the biggest challenge around jurisdiction, in my view, is who are you legally accountable to? And that can be a conduit to change. So it can be very favorable. And as we are observing right now with the SEC in the US, it's like that perception is somewhat changing. There's research by the OECD around fiduciary duty, where it's not quite as black and white as we used to think. If you were to go just by the formulation of the law, the interpretation of the law, in particular in case law, jurisdictions is slightly different yet. But then you have the other side of the coin, and that again varies by jurisdiction, and it is 
how should I put that, the cultural acceptance of the consequences that are entailed and linked to the decisions that as a board you will have to take when it comes to ESG. Again, if we look towards the US, it's hugely polarizing uh, within boards and across society because there are certain values associated with it that aren't part of ESG. ESG is not, it's not a political thing. It's really a long-term prosperity aspect. It has nothing to do with anything else, no matter what side of the political spectrum you are. But it can happen because those concepts have been abused and misused in the past in certain contexts. And not just to, not to single out the use. I mean, we can go to Japan where you look at other definitions around ESG. And again, there are vast differences in perception, what it is, what it isn't, what it's supposed to be, what it's not supposed to be. And when those worlds clash, the one of legal parts, the one of cultural values, in a jurisdiction, but also within a, in a company, then it gets extremely difficult for the board to, and the executives, in fact, to lean out of that window and say, well, this is our line that we're going to be walking because you, whichever way you look, constantly on the fence, defending yourself. And it's hard. It's hard. And that's why I would say the clarity that a future fit board needs to have is so utmost important because in the upfront to line up their dogs correctly, they have to think precisely about the kind of stakeholders and shareholders of which there are the legal aspects, of which there are the societal aspects, of which there are the shareholder aspects and so on and so forth. It is when once you've gone through that process of considering those that you can start to firmly set on your opinion and, and decision line as a board. I am fascinated by the question, who is the corporation accountable to or the board? Various schools of thoughts and the legal aspect, obviously very important, but the moral aspect, I believe, becomes ever more important as well. Absolutely. So a very, very interesting question that is here to stay. Let me ask you a little bit of a more pragmatic question now. How do you believe we can implement that better environmental and social governance. Much has been said about the need of boards governing sustainability. How are we going forward? Well, you can't govern what you don't understand as much as you can't manage what you do, what you don't measure. And I think this is where we failed up until now, by and large, is typically and certainly at this point of time, if you think of typical age range of boards, they won't have dealt with ESG issues in their time as execs. So there's very little hands-on knowledge about the topic. And unfortunately, similar to accounting and similar to running your supply chain, you will have to have a certain amount. It doesn't have to be, you know, decades of experience, but you have to have a, a decent idea of what the knock-on consequences of these decisions are and where they're going to be hurting and where they might be benefiting a company. And I think this is where, as of today, there are very few people around who understand what it means to build a climate strategy. How challenging that really is if you set down the goals and keeping the timelines to it and what you need to understand to do it and why you need to do it. 
similar on the social agenda. So this is a big one, a very big one. And I would say that's once you get to the point that people are willing to accept that it's part of their responsibility. My observation is that this is by far not yet the case as a general rule. So we're actually in a much earlier state, generally speaking, where I would say we're still in the state of awareness raising and getting people to understand that this is essential. It's a sine qua non, but also to understand the systemic connections around it, be it around climate change, be it about climate justice, be it around the concrete implementation, what it means to take both of these and push those into supply chains with concrete deliverables. When it comes to business model, I mean, we're still set on our GDP growth, which is by and large, uh, the more stuff you produce, the more you throw out uh, through your door, the better the economy is doing. We're going back to your earlier questions, what does that mean with regards to resources? So we're already there caught in a catch-22. And I think why we don't have the solution to that We're not even there to have the recognition in most cases that there is a paradox that we may try and need to solve, whether we can or not, that maybe we're lucky enough to find that out in our lifetime. But at least the recognition that there is this paradox, it needs to be dealt with, and you cannot possibly put your head in the sand and ignore it. I absolutely agree. And here at the Sustainability Board Report, we basically started with the question of how ESG conscious or competent are boards. And I think it's fair to say it's getting better, but we're still far off what it should be. Now, I have a lot of conversations at the moment around what actually constitutes ESG competence. Is it a educational certificate that I have obtained? Is it previous experience, knowledge on a particular topic that's material to the business? Any thoughts about that at all? I mean, there are, again, sort of different sides to the dice. I think at the basic, it is on a systemic level, and you don't need an awful lot of, let's say, factual training around that, but really that getting to the point of understanding the paradoxes, the problem, the systemic implications of those climate boundaries, of the planetary boundaries, and of the social knock-on effects on a global level. So that's the very basic. And it's not rocket science. It really isn't. I mean, these days, you might very well be able to chat to a to a primary school child, and they will tell you, but how can you keep growing when the planet is finite? Yes, you know, certain people would like to go to Mars, but good luck with that. With all the challenges it brings, it may be done, but will it be done as easily as we live our lives here? I'm not entirely sure about that. So that's number one. All the rest, once you've understood that, all the rest you could, in principle, cover with experts, outside expertise. Yes, you know, I work with these kinds of boards, so I'm one of them. There are others around. So you have the choice. You either upskill people in the board, you bring people onto the board that do have those skills, as much as you have people there that have their accountancy expertise and that have their industry expertise and that have their compliance and law and policy expertise, you would have a couple of people who at the very least have some ESG expertise. 
And then the third one is you're bringing external expertise in with consultants. And that's usually the point where it gets on, on very specific points that are less generalist, but more specific. If you're really looking at, let's say, climate policy, for example, then that may not be something that you would like to have the board to live every day with. So you bring someone in to cover that area. If you're looking at specifics around ESG reporting standards, which one is the best one to go, how they, again, that's as much in the days as when the international accounting standards were being created for your standard P&L that wasn't, I mean, few people remember, but it's not that long ago that we have unified international accounting standards and, and methodologies that we kind of understand what they mean. I mean, this is the process we're at right now in, in terms of ESG reporting. We're just in the process of, of unifying them and sort of standardizing them. Why would you do that as a board? As a board, you look at your P&L and it's similar. You will look at your ESG P&L in a few years time, but the expertise on, on how to get there and what that needs in the company is something you would be bringing in. Yeah, so fair to say that you don't have to know everything, but you certainly have to embrace that outside knowledge. And and I like what you said, the first part of your answer, it really isn't uh, that difficult. And I think you're right. I remember a conversation with someone who wouldn't want to understand the systemic implications. And I believe I, I said at the end something like, it really is quite simple. A devastated world is bad for business, right? That essentially sums it up. Absolutely. Okay, great, Pamela. Now, you are on the board of the INSEAD uh, International Directors Network, and uh, I would assume that you have your fair share of conversations with your peers and alumni around these topics as well. How has the conversation changed, if at all? And what is INSEAD doing to provide more education to directors in that particular area? When I went through the program behind that alumni organization where it originates, so by now we're broader than alumni they're open to insert alumni that have direct experience. But when I went through that program six years ago now, ESG sustainability wasn't a topic. The reason why I joined that program was to understand why it wasn't and what the board processes were so I could get it in. Fast forward six years, the conversation has changed hugely. Um, and very quickly so. I would say it's two years maybe that it's really intense. It was sort of sprinkling in three years ago, but it's two years. More or less, I'm arguing shortly before the pandemic. I would say corona times plus six months, by and large, that's where I observed this to become a, a much more intense. But what it's still perceived is as a trend. And this worries me massively, that a lot of the directors and people that have gone through very well-paid executive programs and MBAs at a business school like INSEAD, and I mean, I take INSEAD here as an example because I know it reasonably well, they still see it as a trend rather than a new way of doing business. Now, INSEAD itself has gone down an interesting path equally much before that, I would say about starting 2017, together with an endowment by, funny enough, the family behind of Madlachosh, they created a center who is in charge, in fact, of refurbishing, if you would like to see it that way, every single curriculum of the university to include SDGs and sustainability components, whether you do an entrepreneurial MBA, whether you do a healthcare APM, uh, MBA and so on and so forth. So all of them, by now, at least the MBAs and the bachelors and so on, they go through an SDG base camp, for example. 
it's very recently now, finally, that they got two executive programs, one for lawyers related to sustainability. So that will be mostly with the compliance piece. And then there will be sort of fiduciary duty components associated with that. And then there's what they really call sort of a more generalist executive sustainability program, which is a bit broader. It's not necessarily IME for boards, but it could very well apply also to someone with either that sits on board or as a board aspiration. So the intention there is to understand the challenges as we were talking about the systemics and, you know, it's not being rocket science. In essence, they take case studies and funny enough, gamified approaches to ex have them experience it. Within the idea, the, uh, the Insight Directors Network, the conversations are rather quite intense. Uh, we've offered webinars and continuous training in, in that context. Sometimes I'm a bit cynic about that. So suddenly there are loads of directors that call themselves experts in ESG when two and a half, three years ago, they barely knew what the abbreviation stood for. So I see that in a sense, it's a bit like with greenwashing. It's, it's good because suddenly the pressure is on. So they feel they have to have the credentials because otherwise they're going to be going under. And the market will decide also here, if they can deliver on their promise, they will be in board positions. And um, if they can't, they won't. And in that sense, uh, a, a big hands up to the economy as we run it right now, it's skills that count. And if you don't fulfill your skill set, you're out of business. And, and it's no different in a direct position. Great. And I'm so curious to see what are the particular traits um, behaviors that will eventually confirm a director being ESG competent or not, but much work still needs to be done on that. Okay, Pamela, now we almost come to the end of today's episode. As with most guests, I could carry on talking to you for much longer, but I want to close with two of the questions that we pose to all of our guests and those listeners who are following us regularly will know this is my favorite part. So let me ask you, what is your favorite story of a particular leader or organization that had a big impact on either yourself or society at large? Well, I have two sort of, how should I call those idols is maybe the wrong way, but it's like there have been two persons, funny enough, both of them male, that have really made a big impression on me and both accidentally come out of the outdoor industry. One is Joe McSwinney. He used to be the CEO and president of Cascade Design. So anyone who's got an MSR tent or snowshoes, he used to run that company. And the reason for that being, I've never seen anyone, even in high stress times, being so sharp, so clear, and so calm about what needed to be done. He was on top of that, even though that was not anywhere near as we're talking a fair few years ago. It's like he ran Cascade until six years ago or so for about a decade. He was deep involved into sustainability efforts to build tools to measure for companies like his. At the time, that was unheard of. And he was doing that in his own private time as a CEO of a company with multiple brands to run. So for me, that really shows commitment and it shows understanding of what is needed. The second one is the current CEO of Patagonia, Ryan Gellert, who I had the chance to briefly work with while I still was working for a trader association. And for a completely different but equally simple reason, I've never seen someone 
empowering his people in such a way that they aspire to, if you want to call it that way, revolutionary goals. And if you've observed Patagonia since he's taken over just barely a year ago, they've become a lot more vocal, they've become a lot more stringent, they've become a lot more militant, you could argue. And to give your people the courage to do that while holding a company together, while running the business and so on and so on, and opening new markets. I mean, Patagonia in the US is having a food business that is very, very successful in the area of regenerative agriculture. Together with the personality he has, like if I still say today, if I had to go back in time, if I could have a choice to work for someone, then it would be for him most likely. So these are the two people that I really look up to, think is like that there's there's never enough land from them, as far as I'm concerned, at least. Great examples. And I think a lot of people would agree on Ryan Gellert. I personally don't know him, but been following Patagonia, obviously, closely. One of the case studies for sustainable business. And great to hear that he was even able to bring it to yet another level. So thanks for sharing that, Pamela. And then lastly, can you give our listeners one piece of advice that they can make part of their leadership toolkit and start applying today to set them up for more positive societal impact? Ignore political correctness, just get the job done. Fair enough. That's the shortest answer we ever had to this question and probably my favorite now as well. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Great. Uh, Pamela, we have come to the end. Thanks ever so much. It was a fantastic conversation. I'm very pleased that you took the time today and I hope to speak to you soon. Thank you very much, Frederick. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Conversations. To follow our work and learn more about our reports, please check out our website, boardreport.org, and sign up to our newsletter. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Details can be found in the podcast description.